Hello, I'm Mehdi Hassan, and welcome to this special edition of Head to Head on how the global pandemic has put China in the crosshairs of some in the West. Due to the lockdown, we're departing from our usual format and going head to head with not one, but two guests and without an audience. Just as a US-China trade deal was signed, a novel coronavirus brought the world to a standstill and the finger pointing began. China's cover-up of the Wuhan virus allowed the disease to spread all over the world. The pandemic picked at old wounds. For decades, China raided our factories, offshored our jobs, gutted our industries. But has the coronavirus blame game provided a convenient deflection from his own government's failures? Amidst accusations of cozying up to China, the US President Donald Trump asked the Chinese Premier for help to win this year's US election. That's just one of a number of startling claims. And with calls for a tougher stance. We cannot afford inaction any longer. The threat of China to the free world grows by the day. Does the West really need to stand up to a rising China? My guest in the second half of this show is former British diplomat and academic Kerry Brown, who thinks that now more than ever, the world needs cooperation rather than confrontation with China. Joining me in this first half, however, is retired US General Robert Spaulding. He was Trump's senior director for national security strategy and says he was fired for standing up to China. The general is convinced that China is conducting a stealth war in pursuit of global domination. I think it's the most consequential existential threat, not just to America, just to democracy the world's ever seen. He's been long calling for an awakening, which he thinks COVID-19 has finally sparked. It takes this coronavirus really to make people stand up and, and look at what kind of regime is in China. But is it even possible to cut ties with and stand up to China? Or is making the Chinese Communist Party the new bogeyman a desperate last resort of the world's soul if waning superpower? General Spaulding, thank you for joining me on Head to Head. Thank you. Great to be with you. I think it's fair to say you're not a fan of China. You've suggested the Chinese Communist Party, which rules that country, is a bigger threat to the West than ISIS, than Al-Qaeda, than Vladimir Putin's Russia. You've accused them of using the pandemic to start, quote, the first global war of the 21st century without a shot fired. Really? You don't think that's even a little bit over the top? Well, first of all, I'd like to say that I'm, I really love China. I love the Chinese people. But you are right. I do think the Chinese Communist Party is the greatest threat to democracy. And, you know, if you look at the actions that the leadership in Beijing took, from Xi's own mouth, he was in charge of the coronavirus uh, crisis on the 7th of January. Between the 7th of January and the 23rd of January, Five million people traveled out of Wuhan, many to international destinations, and this is where the, the virus spread. In addition, they were clamping down both internally and forcing the World Health Organization not to acknowledge human-to-human -human transmission, and they were locking down PPE and masks both within China and abroad using proxies. So you can see there's a pattern of behavior there that clearly shows that they deliberately spread the virus they didn't lock down within China to prevent the travel to international, in spite of the fact they knew about human-to-human -human transmission. 
General Spalding, you said that the global pandemic, which has taken nearly 150,000 lives here in the US alone, is, quote, 100% the responsibility of the Chinese Communist Party, that they created it. Where's your evidence for that pretty big claim? In fact, you and Donald Trump and others have even suggested at times that it was a lab experiment gone wrong, maybe even a bioweapon. Again, where's your evidence for that, given the US intelligence community says they do not believe it was man-made or genetically modified? Well, I've always said quite clearly that I don't know about the origin of the virus. And we're not going to know about it unless the Chinese Communist Party allows us to get investigators there on the ground, do a forensic investigation to find out what the origin. I say forget about the origin of the virus. That's not the issue. The issue is they knew about human-to-human -human transmission but hid it. And then their actions after the leadership in Beijing knew what was going on. That's what I'm talking about. Those actions enabled the spread. So I do want to come back to that point and examine some of the stuff you're saying. But you've said, I believe this particular strain was modified in a lab. Pompeo, the US Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, says there's evidence it came from a lab. President Trump says he has a high degree of confidence. Even though the US intelligence community disagrees with you, top scientists say there's no indication that it came from a lab or it was engineered. And you've even gone further. You've said, for example, is it for a weapon? Is it so that you can create a vaccine that you were the sole recipient of the profits from? Your critics, General, might say, this sounds pretty paranoid. This is pretty tinfoil hat stuff. Well, I always preface those arguments as that's my own personal opinion. I don't have any facts, and I don't claim to know how the virus was if developed. If you don't have any facts, how can you reach such a startling it, I, and dramatic conclusion? So the, so the answer is we know that Sher Jung Lee was doing bat-related gain-of-function coronavirus research. We know that. She was writing reports about it. She was hired to do that. And we also know that our State Department did an inspection in 2018 and sent a note saying they were concerned about the safety uh, um, protocols within the P4 lab in Wuhan. So when you look at it, there's much more evidence to say that it probably is related to her research than it is you know, that it happened just accidentally in a, in a wet market. And yet market. five top scientists from the US, UK and Australia wrote a paper in March in Nature Medicine saying, we do not believe any type of laboratory-based scenario is plausible. The US intelligence community in April, your former colleagues said, we see no reason to dissent from the scientific consensus. Let me ask you this about the Chinese government. You mentioned the timeline earlier about the cover-up and the delay. If the Chinese Communist Party was trying to deliberately let COVID-19 spread around the world, uh, it's strange that on January 3rd, they informed the WHO about a strange new viral threat. On January 11th, they shared a genetic sequence with the world so that everyone else could start making a vaccine. On January 23rd, they locked down 45 million of their own citizens in the biggest quarantine in human history. They banned travel out of Wuhan a week before Donald Trump banned travel out of China. This doesn't sound like a country that's trying to infect the rest of the world. Well, then... If you look at and you read that research, what it says, there are assumptions in that research. The assumptions they made say this has to be backed up by an inspection of the laboratory, okay. by an investigation where you question the researchers in, in, in question. Fine. So they are not, you know, 100% convinced either. So Fine. What about the timeline? Say, what about okay, the Chinese the origin, government's we don't behavior know. that doesn't fit this conspiracy the that they were that, trying to spread it? 
So, so Taiwan sent a notice to World Health Organization saying they were concerned about human-to-human -human transmission. No, in they addition, didn't. On no, the General, General, that's not, January, that's not what Taiwan did. I read the Taiwan note to the WHO. They simply asked a question about why patients were being treated in isolation. They said nothing about human-to-human -human transmission. What about the six doctors that they brought in for questioning and told them, You're, you are spreading rumors. Why are you, why are you talking about this? But I'm not the, disputing, in, in, General, the that the Chinese government January. behaved badly. I'm, I'm agreeing with you. The Chinese government is an authoritarian government that doesn't like transparency and clearly, uh, you know, locked people up and tried to shut things down. But here's what I don't get, General Spaulding. On the one hand, you're arguing that the CCP infected the world. They're responsible for all the deaths. They unleashed a dangerous virus on us all. On the other hand, you're one of a group of Americans who thinks the virus isn't so bad, the lockdowns aren't so necessary, and the coronavirus is, quote, not so much more deadly than the common flu. Your words. False, by the way. Completely inaccurate. You can't have it both ways. China is evil for unleashing a deadly pandemic. And by the way, the pandemic ain't so bad anyways. Well, because if you look at the models that were used and the amount of deaths that they were calling for and have been calling for, the amount of deaths that we should have seen in the United States based on the infection rate and everything else should have been in the millions. That's what they were saying. That's Yet, not what they were saying. We they were have saying not seen any, anything any like lockdowns, that. It would have been in the millions. We had some lockdowns, which you opposed and Donald Trump clearly opposes. Well, and you look at what's happened here. In spite of the lockdowns, what have we had? We've had the lowest fatality rates of any of the countries out there, uh, except maybe Taiwan. That's completely false, General. You know because, that's completely you know, if you false. Want, if America you want, has the fifth or sixth highest mortality rate in the world, according to Johns Hopkins. You know that's not true. No country, virtually no country did a good job. But I'll tell you one that did. One that's 70 miles off the coast of China yes. is Taiwan. Taiwan had the best, the I, best I, I, response I agree to with the you. coronavirus. I Would you disagree with, with that? I, General, let's, let's agree. I agree with you. Taiwan did a great job. Uh, Vietnam, which shares a border with China, did a great job. South Korea, not far from China, did a great job. Japan, not far from China, did a great job. It's funny that all these countries near to China did good jobs, and a country far away from China is blaming China for its record death toll. Isn't this whole blame China thing a political strategy by the Republican Party? In fact, a 57-page memo was circulated, as I'm sure you're aware, among Republican Party politicians in April, advising them to explicitly, aggressively attack China for the pandemic as part of their re election strategy while blaming Democrats for being, and I quote, soft on China. You seem to be just touting a Republican Party line. This is politics. This is not science. So I have nothing to do with the Republican Party. I call things the way I see it. The reason the countries in, that you mentioned, I believe, fared well during the coronavirus is because they did not believe what the Chinese Communist Party was saying. And they enacted measures that was not called for by the World Health Organization. By the way, I have been highly critical of our own CDC for following the World Health Organization and not following the CDC of Taiwan, it's, it's which I think had it correct. It's interesting that you say that these countries you mentioned uh, didn't believe China. And yet today we're told China can't be trusted, China can't be believed, China's a bad actor. Uh, you say that, Donald Trump says that, the Republicans say that. And yet Donald Trump, who you worked for and I believe whose re-election you support, spent the first few months of this crisis heaping praise on the Chinese government, literally believing every word they told him. He said they were working hard, working very hard, working really hard. They were leading a successful operation, he said, doing a very good job on the coronavirus. He said he appreciated their efforts and transparency. He said, I want to thank President Xi, who he also regularly refers to as a good friend. And yet now you say China's to blame. Well, maybe you should tell Donald Trump.
Well, I'm not sure what we're talking about here. Do we want to talk about the president's communication style or the message he puts out? Or are we going to talk about the policies instituted? I want to know about his message, to be honest. I don't buy this idea that there's a difference between message and policy. I can't speak for the president. I don't know. But you support him. You praise he, he, him. You he like could him. Have had I read a, your he book. Could, you he could have had advice. Him. Did you notice the fact that I heard priests heap praise on Bernie Sanders? I've read your book. I, I've checked out your tweets. You said in June on Twitter, I like presidents whose best friends aren't leaders of the CCP. Donald Trump says, and I quote, we love each other in reference to Xi Jinping. He says we will be friends no matter what. That's Donald Trump's words. How are you okay with that? I don't get it. Okay, so I was in the National Security Council working uh, as an advisor to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs in the Obama administration. I saw how the Obama administration conducted policy with regard to China Great. and That's, the Chinese respect, Communist Party. I've seen how wasn't about this Obama. administration has conducted policy. I know it's not your question, but what I'm telling you, it's irrelevant. What I'm looking at, what are the policy implications? General, who did, it can't who be irrelevant. I'm quoting your 301 words. Investigation? You can't say your own who, tweet is irrelevant. Who? You said, I didn't force you to say this, you said, I prefer presidents who aren't friends with the leaders of the Communist Party of China. I'm telling you, Donald Trump has said on six occasions in the last two years, he is friends with Xi Jinping. He says, quote, we are in love with each other. He's in love with the guy you can't stand. And nearly every time he was brought a policy decision that what I would say the last four presidents would have made, he went the other way, particularly as it pertains to the Chinese Communist Party. Now, he may say whatever he wants, but at the, when the time came to make a decision about okay. were we going to implement tariffs against China, he made that decision against, by the way, the, the advice of a lot of people in his administration. Fair, fair enough on tariffs. Let me ask you this, though. You mentioned policy. One of the big policies I know you've been vocal on, I've been vocal on, many have been vocal on, is the treatment of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang province in China. Horrific mistreatment by the Chinese. People talk about cultural genocide. Donald Trump has said openly in a recent interview with Axios that he didn't want to do anything about that because he was trying to get a trade deal with his friend Xi Jinping, John Bolton. Uh, former national security advisor, says that Donald Trump not only told President Xi Jinping to his face that he was, quote, the greatest light leader in Chinese history, but he also told the Chinese president he was totally fine with them building mass detention camps for Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang, where more than a million Uyghurs are believed to now be held. That's an outrage, isn't it? That's the problem with the media. They're constantly looking at what the president says and not what the administration is doing. Secretary Pompeo works for the president. He doesn't say the same things that the president says. I'm not, I'm not disputing that, General, and that's a very fair point you make about Pompeo. Very fair. I'm just asking you, you're telling me it doesn't matter that the president of the United States told the leader of a country that's holding a million people in camps, totally fine with me. You're saying that has no impact, no consequence? I shouldn't even be asking you about that? That's a problem with the media? I'm saying not what matters Trump. and what I focus on, as opposed to the media, is what are the policy responses? Oh, come what on, are we General. If Barack Obama had said that, you would be policy. all over him. You know it and I know it. You would be rightly criticizing Obama. If Look, Obama I, had said, go I, for it, I, build I served some the country for 27 camps. years in the military. I don't care who's the president. If the president's the commander-in-chief, I do what, what's ordered. But I'm telling you what I saw with my own eyes. I so don't care what, what Obama said tell a bunch of things and didn't follow through. This summer, they finally signed sanctions four years in. What did he do? I can't find a single quote or statement from Trump criticizing China's mistreatment of the Uyghurs over his first four years, three and a half years in office. I think what you're seeing 
is the evolution of a policy, a change of, a massive, in the United States, a massive change in foreign policy focused on democratic principles, human rights, civil liberty, rule of law, free trade, that takes a long time to put into place. The reason it takes a long time to put into place is because we have to get concurrence on a bilateral basis with allies and partners about our shared values and principles that we are going to push forward in the world. And what has happened since the well, end of the Cold War is that we have created this big system that no longer functions to promote those principles and I mean, values. General, and if we're going to you know, actually do that, it's going to take a long time. As you know, a lot of America's allies would say it's America that has let down the cause of democracy around the world. Donald Trump, who has coddled dictators from Egypt to Russia to China. Uh, you mentioned spreading democracy. How does, that, how does that work in Hong Kong? When the protests erupted in Hong Kong last summer, Trump said, quote, according to John Bolton's book, I don't want to get involved. He later publicly referred to them as riots echoing official Chinese Communist Party propaganda. I know you've said, General, that Hong Kong is supposed to be independent, but Trump said last year at the height of the protests, these protests are between Hong Kong and China because Hong Kong is a part of China. And the Chinese press praised him for saying it. How did that make you feel? As a nation, we said that, the administration said that Hong Kong is no longer sufficiently autonomous. That's a policy. Now, as we move forward, that's going to mean that Was this it not a policy to ignore the, the protests Communist and call Party, them riots? Was that not policy? I'm confused what you define as policy. When the president says these are riots, the, the policy of the United us, States that's not a policy. is now, and he just signed an executive order, right? Just recently now, signed an now, executive order. I'm asking order about last year when they were at their peak. Hong Kong is no, no longer sufficiently at, autonomous. So, this is the, what I'm telling you is things are changing. Now, okay. what I thought. To be honest, to be quite frank, is that right now, where we stand today in terms of policy, we wouldn't get to till 2023 because of the how long it takes to get policy through the administration. But what I've seen since the coronavirus is an acceleration of the implementation of policy, not just in the United States, but with allies okay. and partners. And that Fair. really re is reflected by the recent decision by the UK to ban Huawei. Yes. This so is what I'm seeing. So let me ask you, where do you see this going, General? Because you've long held this view, before Donald Trump did, before the pandemic began, that China is enemy number one of the West, of the US. You even said that you wrote your book, Stealth War, as a call to arms to alert people to Chinese covert aggression, to a Chinese plan to dominate the world. What is it that you want the rest of the world to do? Is it to fight back? Are you pushing for a military confrontation between the US and China? Oh, no, absolutely not. In fact, you know that, is, I think, is the could be the worst outcome. What I am saying is that Free societies create four things, innovation, talent, capital, and technology. And that that has flowed continuously for the last three decades to China. Rather than that, it should flow to democratic societies. So what I'm advocating for is a democratic, a union of democratic societies. And if China wants to have a union of authoritarian societies, so be it. Isn't it a risky strategy? Because economic war and a war of words can often escalate into a hot war. You know that. Aren't you worried about the consequences? I actually believe that in this case, the fact that China and the United States both have nuclear weapons is a deterrent to con open conflict between the two. I don't believe either leader would like to see the devastation that a full open war between the United States and China would exact on their respective populations. So no, I think the competition is going to continue to be economic, informational, ideological, political, but I do not believe general. and I do not advocate that it be military. 
Uh, you don't advocate it. Uh, fair enough. I'm just wondering why you're so relaxed about it. You're saying, oh, we've got nukes. It won't happen. As if India, Pakistan haven't almost gone to war. They both have nukes. Let me just ask you this, though. On surveillance, you're not just worried about the Chinese government using tech to spy on Americans. You believe that they're using their own citizenry to spy on the US. And you've gone further than most in saying in your book that all Chinese visitors to the US need to be monitored because they might end up being spies. That's not just extreme and rather hostile. How would that even work? Every Chinese student and businessman who turns up uh, at the US gets their own, what, North Korean-style minder from the FBI or the CIA? How would that work? So first of all, this is a big problem with understanding China. The Chinese Communist Party controls the police, the borders, the banks, the military. They control all the legitimate power within the society and access to capital. They use that to motivate people to do things that they want them to do, either through fear or Understood, greed. Understood, but 2.8 million Chinese but nationals the, visited the, the U.S. Line last year. 2.8 million. They have a law that says every citizen, every company has to collect intelligence on behalf of the nation. I understand the argument. What is your, what is your claimed solution to monitor 2.8 million people who visited the U.S. last year? 350,000 Chinese university students in the U.S. Have them followed around? I don't get it. No, I would argue that they can't be here unless we have a different Chinese Communist Party that doesn't have a law so that you says want to ban we can Chinese citizens from the to US. be a spy. You want, to travel ban, you want a travel ban on China to match the Muslim ban. Just trying to get some clarity. It's a quite stark proposal to say you want to either monitor them or ban them. No, what I said, what I said is we need a strict vetting process and the things that Chinese people claim to be coming over for ought to be strictly looked at. And yes, we ought to have some idea of what they're doing in the country, given the fact that the Chinese Communist Party mandates that they become an intelligence asset. I mean, it sounds like uh, the, uh, the irony is that to try and defeat China, you sound like you want the U.S. to become more like China, more authoritarian, more, more, uh, more of a surveillance state. Let me just ask you this. Aren't you worried about the demonization of Asians in America? You said at the start of the show that you love China, you love Chinese people. There's been a, a record increase in attacks, hate crimes against Asian Americans since the start of the pandemic, uh, incited by a president who talks about Kung flu in his speeches. None of that bothers you? Absolutely it bothers me. Of course it bothers me anytime there's a hate crime or there's racial bias. That's terrible. That's not America. But that's not what I'm talking Hold on, about. The, the I'm talking about the Chinese American Communist president Party says and their ability. Okay, Hold so on, the candidate look, but look, you have students who you praise in your book is saying Kung flu at rallies and people are then shouting Kung flu in the street. I'm asking you to deal with that rather than avoid that. Point. Okay, so 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 again, let's go back to what I support. Would you condemn I support that? Policies you said you're not a Republican. That restrict would you the condemn ability. the use of the phrase Kung flu? It's a very simple question. I would condemn any racist or any bias. Yes, I condemn. Okay. Racial, one one know, last bias question then before we finish. Any form is unacceptable. But what I what I what I also realize that Whatever you say with regard to the president, whether he has warts, whether he's a perfect communicator, what I'm focusing on, what is the outcome of the policy decisions that have been made in this administration Understood. for the time that it's been in office? That's, that's what I look at. Understood. One last question before we finish. Isn't the real issue here, not that you're bothered about China dominating the world, but you're worried that a rising China threatens U.S. dominance of the world. That's the real issue, that you don't like the idea of having to share the international stage with another new superpower. <laughs> well, first of all, that's crazy on its face. I would love it if India was dominating the world. 
All I want to see is a nation that dominates the world to, to promote democratic principles, rule of law, human rights, civil liberty, free trade, which, whatever nation does that. It doesn't have to be the United States. I recognize that for, in order for my freedoms in our republic to stay intact, to promote the kind of society I want to live in and I want my children and grandchildren to live in, that we're going to have to work together as democracies to promote that those kinds of institutions within the broader global community. And a, a China that is all powerful, that controls the means of production, that controls the global information economy is not going to promote those kinds of principles. Well, I'm not sure India is promoting human rights for its Muslim minority, but that's a conversation for another day. General Spalding, thank you so much for joining me on Head to Head. Thank you. That's it for part one of this special head-to-head. -head. In part two, I'll challenge Kerry Brown, former British diplomat and director of the Lao China Institute, on why he believes the only way forward is to engage with China. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a few minutes after the news headlines. Welcome back to this special edition of Head to Head with not just one, but two guests debating whether the West and China are entering a new Cold War or whether the threat from Beijing is being exaggerated. In part one, I spoke to former Trump official General Robert Spalding, who made his case for why he believes China should be treated as an enemy to democracies across the world. Now for the opposing view. And that is the In this second half of the show, I'll challenge Kerry Brown, a former senior British diplomat, professor of Chinese studies, and best-selling author. He argues that on the contrary, the West needs China now more than ever. It is impractical to say to a fifth of humanity, you must go away. It's not going to happen. It is a fantasy. A Chinese doctor who was among the first to sound the alarm on the coronavirus outbreak. But from China's alleged cover-up of COVID-19. The world is now suffering as a result of the malfeasance of the Chinese government. To accusations of unfair trade practices. Deals have got to be fair. Deals have got to be good deals. You need to be able to be playing to the same rules of, as those other developed nations. And human rights abuses. Does the Chinese government pose an undeniable threat, both at home and abroad? And is it time for the West to take a tougher stance towards a new and growing global power? Kerry Brown, thank you for joining me on Head to Head. Thank you. My guest in part one, retired US General Robert Spalding, says the Chinese Communist Party is 100% to blame for every single coronavirus death around the world. Do you agree with that? No, I mean, it's got some responsibility for sure. But to say that it's responsible for some of the mismanagement in Europe and America and elsewhere uh, seems to me to be shifting the blame from the people that should be taking it. So I don't think it's responsible for every death. And it's not really clear at the moment where the responsibility was at the beginning. But what about the argument uh, that China's leaders knew about human to human transmission back in uh, early January, maybe even earlier, but didn't share that with the rest of the world. Uh, they allowed five million people to leave Wuhan to spread the virus, that they destroyed initial samples of the virus in Wuhan. One seeming cover up after another, say the critics. Yeah, so there's been a big discussion about whether local officials did uh, respond as quickly as they could. We have to bear in mind, though, that everyone has proved that this was a really, really tough issue to deal with. Our own 
Prime Minister in Britain today, Boris Johnson, said they didn't handle it well at the beginning because they didn't know what they were dealing with. But that doesn't change the fact that the Chinese government still have many questions to answer. Uh, they're not keen on answering those questions. There are studies suggesting that if they'd acted a couple of weeks, two, three weeks earlier, they could have reduced the number of cases by 95 percent, prevented the spread of it around the world. We now have a global pandemic and the country uh, where it started and is now, the critics say, engaging in a cover up. Well, yeah, I mean, China has said that it'll hold an investigation. It hasn't said when it'll hold that, but pressure has already said that it will hold an investigation. It has suffered also from the pandemic. It hasn't walked away from this, you know, easily. I don't think that it's kind of done this deliberately. So I think that just casting this all on China and making it solely an issue about China is, as I said, an over-exaggeration. Dr. Li Wenliang, a Chinese doctor in Wuhan, tried to warn his colleagues about a new SARS-like virus in late December, only to be investigated and detained by the police for, quote, making false comments. He later died from the coronavirus. Does anything better sum up the Chinese Communist Party's uh, alleged cruelty, secrecy, sheer failure on this issue than the death of Dr. Li? No, that's true, and that is a very, very bad case. I mean, I don't think anyone would try to defend the way that he was treated. Uh, Factually, though, I mean, he was a party member. He was a party member until the day he died. And it was in a WhatsApp group that he was uh, discussing this issue. So it wasn't a public discussion. Uh, And the issue really was that the officials who were trying to handle this at the beginning panicked. So I don't think, again, it was a deliberate act, but it was certainly badly managed, badly handled. You mentioned that China is uh, open to an investigation, has talked about looking into what happened, what went wrong. And yet when Australia pushed for an independent investigation into the source and spread of the coronavirus, Beijing threatened a boycott of Australian beef, wine, tourism and universities. Uh, There were allegations of uh, hacking against the Australians. Is this really the behaviour of a responsible global power that has nothing to hide? Well, it's the behaviour of a power that has a political system that makes it quite isolated. I mean, it's the only power really in the world, significant power, that runs on a one-party communist system. So it is somewhat paranoid and somewhat defensive. There are plenty of things it does wrong, but we have to remember, you know, that it was okay for Australia, for instance, in the good years, to be able to trade with China, to export huge amounts of iron ore to China, to basically last for the last 30 years without a significant recession because of the benefits it got from China. And now, of course, its tone has changed and it wants a kind of much more brittle relationship. You've talked a lot in the past about wanting uh, people to be uh, less confrontational, deal more in the terms of uh, engagement rather than confrontation. You want the West to be less aggressive towards China. Uh, in recent months, there have been clashes on the border between China and India and, of course, growing tensions between China and Japan, China and Vietnam, China and Malaysia, China and Indonesia. China and the Philippines. Why shouldn't Western countries like the US side with its allies in the region against an increasingly belligerent Beijing? Well, all those powers that you've mentioned from Japan to India all have separate issues with China. They're not the same. So if the United States and others come along and say they are siding with a group of powers, uh, they're not the same issue they're siding with. Does the US really have a very strong view on the disputed border between India and China? Probably not. The US has a separate kind of set of issues than all of these powers, and it has a separate relationship, for instance, with Japan, which is a treaty ally of. So these are not the same problem. We shouldn't just dump them all together. OK, fair enough. But what about the wider issue, which is China seems to have a lot of problems with its neighbours? Well, for sure. And who doesn't? I mean, you know, in Europe, countries have problems with their neighbours. The question is, to what extent others get involved in those issues? 
Uh, I mean, China wants its rightful place. It's the world's second biggest economy. It feels that America comes right up to its borders. So in a sense, it's not strange that the world's second biggest economy now wants more strategic space. The question is how it has that space and whether others can cooperate with this or have constant tensions and fights with it. It's not always wrong. It's not always right, for sure, but China is not always wrong. You say who doesn't have problem with their neighbours. Um, China's Coast Guard rammed and sank a fishing boat in disputed waters off of Vietnam in April. Uh, Chinese ships also in April harassed a Malaysian drill ship inside of Malaysia's own exclusive economic zone. When was the last time that happened between two European countries? You mentioned Europe. Well, indeed, it doesn't, because Europe is now, you know, kind of no longer in that period. But historically, it's been a place of pretty devastating wars. We all know that. China is in a different stage. I mean, the fact of the matter is that in terms of real military conflict, China has not been involved in a significant international conflict since the Korean War in 1950. So, I mean, you know, we kind of remember, we've got to remember that the mysterious thing about this huge power, China, is... Although it kind of gets involved in these skirmishes, as of today, it has not become involved in an international military conflict. And there is a question about whether acting towards China in the way that many do may well precipitate that. But I don't think it's what China wants. And that's a fair point. The critics would say it's not just military bullying by uh, the Chinese government in somewhere like the South China Sea, uh, but it's economic bullying too, uh, especially against the West. Uh, the National Basketball Association in the US, the NBA last year, had to issue a craven apology uh, to the Chinese when the general manager of the Houston Rockets merely tweeted his support for a democratic Hong Kong. Hollywood has repeatedly edited out scenes from blockbuster movies because they may offend China. Just recently, the US Attorney General Bill Barr accused big US corporations like Apple, Cisco, Disney of bowing to Beijing. Isn't it time, many would say, to take a stronger uh, stand against Chinese pressure, Chinese extortion of uh, Western corporations for a start? Well, my argument would be the ba basketball case proves that when China does behave like this, it's very counterproductive. I mean, if there's one thing that's going to irritate Americans, it's being pushed around about issues like basketball. So I don't think that worked. And that, I think, is a good example of why sometimes China's diplomacy is the best uh, asset for its critics. Uh, but I mean, the basic issue is, you know, is China the first country in the history of the world to use its economy in order to get what it wants? I mean, that's precisely what everyone does. Countries have used their economies forever to get what they want. What's unusual about that? They have, but if you take Google, for example, which tried to create a bespoke censored search engine for China when the project came to light, its own employees protested. Uh, Google was accused of pushing out its own human rights chief. Uh, we're talking about one of the most powerful companies in the world, undermining its own stated values, its own senior staff, in order to stay in good terms with China, in order to do authoritarian things with China. That is pretty unique. Well, Google had a choice, for sure, and Google withdrew. And now Google is still an extremely successful company and China has its own version, Baidu. So I guess this is where the world is heading. We're going to end up with these kind of divisions. The question is, do those divisions have to be ones where there's constant clash and absolute, you know, people wanting to go for total victory? Or do we kind of actually just cooperate and have a world where this sort of, di this kind of duality is the sort of new normal? It's the situation we live in. 
I think Google is a good example that can happen. Um, it comes back again to Beijing. Aren't they the ones looking for total victory? Take the example of Hong Kong. You wrote last year, quote, Hong Kong needs to now have a period of calmness and predictability. Losing its global prominence would serve no one's interests, least of all Beijing's. And yet Beijing, having violently cracked down on protesters in Hong Kong, recently imposed a new, pretty draconian national security law in Hong Kong. Many would say an escalation uh, in the crisis in Hong Kong that brings in all sorts of new criminal offences, gives the authorities their broad new powers to limit people's freedoms. They didn't have to do that, but they did it. Who's the ones looking for total victory? Well, I, I mean, I think the Hong Kong example is uh, a very, very difficult one because the perpetual protest before COVID-19 uh, impacted on everyone and there was shared responsibility for that. For sure, what the Chinese government has done with this security law is surprising to everyone and it's really, really questionable whether it will succeed. I, I mean, the issue really is that for me, China as a rising power, uh, the problem with it is not so much that it wants to dominate. The problem is that it often wants to keep out of issues which don't directly relate to it. It's not like the United States, maybe not even like Europeans in the past, where they felt that there was a sort of global element to their power. The problem with China is that it is only self-interested. That is a different issue to someone that wants to dominate. But even if we accept your point that it doesn't want to dominate, and many would, would argue against that, at the very minimum, it certainly doesn't want to abide by the rules that others abide by. It wants to do what it wants to do, no matter anyone's objections. Take the national security law. Article 38 says it applies to people who aren't permanent residents of Hong Kong and who live outside of Hong Kong. Any critic of China anywhere in the world could be arrested if they stepped foot on Hong Kong soil. In the words of one prominent law professor, this is China, quote, asserting extraterritorial jurisdiction over every person on the planet. Well, I think the thinking behind that is that China has arrived at a situation, a kind of world where most of the rules of international engagement were devised and written before it came on the scene. Uh, and it feels now that it has at least the need for a voice in how these rules happen. I don't think that China wants to rip up all of those rules. In many areas, it is willing to abide by the rules. In many areas, it's willing to have a say over the rules. China has come along and said, well, there are some things where we're very happy to work with you and others where we want to go our own way. We may have trying an issue to apply with that, your criminal laws that is to every person by on saying the planet is a pretty unique and pretty aggressive move, some may argue. That's kind of what, you know, kind of extraterritorial, you know, sort of legislation does for other countries, isn't it? I mean, I, I don't say it's right, but it's not like China's the only one doing it. I mean, anti-corruption laws from the United States apply to people in Britain and elsewhere. I, I mean, these are things that everyone tries to do. Yeah, are I mean, you really China's comparing an anti-corruption law to a national security law which involves preventing criticism of the Chinese government? The problem with the legislation as it's drafted in this bill is it's so vague that no one knows what it really means. And we won't know that until it's put into practice. <laughs> but hold on. We won't know until it's put into practice. It's going to be put into practice by an authoritarian power, an undemocratic power that has a long history of human rights abuses. Well, but no real history of working outside its own borders. So, I, I mean, we're in the area of speculation. I mean, you may well be right. People that say this may well be right. But I think it's going to be a quite a sort of distant prospect that China is going to come and grab, you know, people in other territories. I think this is clearly only meant for Hong Kong, and it's clearly to address an issue in Hong Kong. It may well not address that issue, but I don't think we can over-dramatise it.
You say there's no evidence of China working abroad. There is plenty of evidence amassed both by journalists and human rights groups of the Chinese government trying to target dissidents or dissidents' families abroad. You know that. Yeah, I mean, but those are people it says it still has claims on, originally from China, right? I, I mean, I'm talking really about commentators, people like you and me. I, I think China's got enough fights on its plate at the moment without trying to sort of antagonise groups that really it doesn't feel it has direct links to. You're British, of course, a former British diplomat. The UK uh, has a special connection to Hong Kong, former colonial power. Uh, but you've also written that, quote, Britain can claim no special political influence on this issue. But doesn't Britain have a special responsibility to speak out on behalf of the Hong Kong people, given the UK handed back Hong Kong to the Chinese with the agreement that the civil rights, the political freedoms of the people in Hong Kong would not be violated by Beijing, which, of course, they have been and continue to be? Well, I mean, the people of Hong Kong can speak for the interests of the people of Hong Kong, and they are able to do so very powerfully and had over the last two or three years. So, I mean, the idea of the UK having this sort of great moral responsibility is one that I find maybe up to 1997 it had. When it really could do things, it didn't really do a great deal. And now, of course, it's suddenly become very, very vocal. Well, that's fine. I mean, that is a, you know, it's not that I'm criticising that. I mean, the UK government the the day, signed the an agreement with the Chinese in government in the 1980s, as you know, which set down the rules for how Hong Kong would be administered after uh, it was handed back. The Chinese government are violating those rules, it seems like, in front of the world. The British government shouldn't say or do anything, shouldn't say, hold on, we had an agreement. The 1984 Sino-British Sino uh, you know, kind of agreement, it's, it's like two or three pages long. It is very, very broad and general. The basic law is the de facto constitution of Hong Kong, and that also is pretty broad, and that also has vague language about responsibility I mean, you say, for you security. You say vague. I'm looking, at, it, I'm looking at the language now. Rights and freedoms, including those of the person, of speech, of the press, of assembly, will be ensured by law. We've seen that in front of our eyes last year, that rights of assembly and freedom of speech are not mm. being protected in Hong Kong. So I mm. ask again, should the British government not say anything in your view? No, no, they should. I absolutely agree. They should. The question is whether it's effective, but they should. They definitely should. So how yes. should they be effective? You're a former British diplomat. If you're advising the Prime Minister of the UK today, how would you tell him to be effective in securing the rights of the people of Hong Kong, which was supposed to be secured in the 1984 agreement? Well, is that our job? I mean, is it Britain's, you know, I, I, I mean, is it Hold Britain's on, you just said a moment ago, it is our the job. The British government should speak out. Now you're saying, it's, is it our job? It's okay to speak out, but you can't guarantee. To speak out is not to guarantee the rights of others. It's just to speak out about your opinion of those rights. We have the right to an opinion, but whether we can, you know, kind of uh, give, give ourselves this grand war idea that we can guarantee the rights of others, I don't think that's what we can do. Let's pursue that line of argument on an even bigger human rights issue than Hong Kong. China isn't your bog standard run of the mill human rights abuser. Right now, uh, many critics would argue it's in a league of its own, a near genocidal league of its own. At least a million Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang province have been locked up in mass detention camps where they've been tortured, brainwashed, forced to sing songs praising President Xi Jinping and the Communist Party. There have been very recent reports of Uyghur women being uh, forcibly sterilized, forced to have abortions as part of a Chinese government. Uh, attempt to slash the Muslim birthright there. Is the rest of the democratic world, Kerry Brown, is the West, which said never again after the Holocaust, uh, is it supposed to just turn a blind eye to what looked like massive crimes against humanity in Xinjiang province? Once again, it hasn't. Leaders from Donald Trump to others have spoken out about this. The European Union has issued statements on it. I mean, it's deeply concerning. 
uh, but it's about being effective. The issue really is that whether we like it or not, the Chinese government feels it has a security issue. It has not used the right policy response to that, but it can't be dismissed by saying it has no you know, kind of security problems of its own. We have to focus on detail and fact. Kerry Brown, say, you are one of the world's leading policy? scholars well, on not. China. Are you telling me with a straight face that you believe the imprisonment of hundreds of thousands of people is linked to any genuine security issue? Come on. I'm saying with a straight face that when I go to China and talk to people and talk to people about this issue, they seem totally convinced there is a security problem. I mean, it seems to me a terribly self-harming thing what they've done. If there is no issue, they've created one. If there is no issue, they've created one. But when you say they seem convinced that they have an issue, we know from leaked documents, we know from the testimony of people in the camps that this has, this, this has very little to do with security when it comes to, for example, banning Uyghur Muslims from having the name Mohammed or banning Muslim children in Xinjiang from entering mosques, uh, the birth rate issue, etc. This is, this is what has been called cultural genocide. And genocide tends to have nothing to do with security. It's to do with an ideology of dehumanization, of hatred, of uh, marginalization. I think 22 countries, including Japan, Japan, uh, in July of 2019, signed an open letter to the UN uh, High Commissioner for Human Rights demanding China end its, quote, mass arbitrary detentions and called on Beijing to allow UN experts into Xinjiang. Is there anything in that letter you disagreed with? Should they not have written that letter? No, I mean, it is an appalling situation in Xinjiang. Let me say that absolutely categorically. It is an appalling situation. But let me also add that the ones that had the most power and ability to speak about this, Saudi Arabia, countries in the Middle East, with their yeah. fellow Muslims in, Xi in China, have said nothing. So I would be interested to know what powers like Saudi Arabia and others in the Middle East are intending to do, because if they spoke, it would be very, very much more powerful than Europe, which is always being dismissed in China because it's always saying these things. And that's a very, very powerful argument and, and, and very accurate. Muslim-majority countries have manifestly uh, failed to speak out on this issue. But isn't that partly because of what you said at the start of the show, which is China is a rising power. It's the second biggest economy of the world. Those countries, Pakistan, for example, is totally dependent on Chinese aid, therefore feels it can't say anything. So surely other countries who aren't so dependent on Chinese money, the European Union members, for example, surely they should speak more loudly. Well, sure, everyone should speak. But I go back to my argument just now that the ones that have the most power to speak about this, Muslim countries in the Middle East, have so far been absolutely silent. And there's no argument from me on that. I'm asking specifically about what you do now. You say it's only speech. Let's talk about actions. The United States government, for example, uh, just recently brought in a bunch of targeted sanctions against Chinese Communist Party officials with direct ties to what's going on in Xinjiang. Uh, is that something you oppose? Is that something you think is unnecessary or uncalled for? Yeah, I mean, it's something that people can do. Whether it'll have any effectiveness or not, who knows? But I mean, this is what I don't get clear from what to we've most seen of my questions recently. today. You've said, I don't know if it'll work. I don't know if it'll be effective. You tell us what's effective then. You're saying it's appalling in Xinjiang. What would you do? Prime Minister or Sla President Kerry Brown, what would you be doing to prevent genocide in Xinjiang? Well, so I'm not a politician. I'm here to try and explain. My issue is uh, there is the fact of China, the fact that there is this huge country with a fifth of the world's population, a fifth of the world's GDP, and we have to accept that. And then when we accept it, we can decide what things we do about different aspects of China's behaviour. Now, on the issue of Xinjiang, I guess that it's a security context that we have to understand why China is acting the way it is and not completely dismiss its security concerns. So we have to look at the context.
So you said you're not here to, to be a politician. I'm asking you as an expert, as someone who understands mm. this stuff, you said you're here to explain. Explain to me what can be done. Are you saying nothing can be done to prevent the mass detention of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in Xinjiang? I suspect what can be done is to engage with a very, very serious policy debate with China to show that our experience in Britain and elsewhere... What is the policy debate with on genocide? ...issues like this have not... The policy debate is that China feels that it is dealing with its security issues by putting a million people into these camps, which is actually creating the very problem that they feel it's meant to be dealing with. It's radicalising people. That's inconsistent. When you use that language in China, you actually get people to listen to you. In recent months, Kerry Brown, what many see as China's belligerence abroad seems to have backfired, and, and you conceded this earlier. You now have the UK joining with the United States to blacklist Huawei, the Chinese telecoms giant, which was about to help build Britain's 5G network. You have India banning 59 Chinese mobile apps, including TikTok. Is the tide finally turning against Beijing, and isn't Beijing to blame for that? Well, I think what's happening is the world is dividing. That's true. Whether that's a good thing or not, the world is dividing. We have a China-centric world and then a world which is not China-centric. And Huawei kind of exemplifies that. It does very little in Europe and America, but it does lots in Latin America and Africa. That's the fact that what we see is a world which is dividing. And that is worrying to hear you say that. Let me ask you this. One last question. Um, I get that you want to engage with China, avoid division, avoid conflict. And that's an admirable goal. But at what point does engagement with a country like China, with a government like the Chinese Communist Party's, become appeasement? Well, if things are framed in the way that things have been framed today, with talking about you know, the big, big problematic issues, well, for sure, it's very hard. But that's like focusing on just one side of a photo, one side of a picture. What we've got to remember is there's also massive issues where China does work with the world. On climate change, for instance, it's also contributed hugely in terms of development in third countries. You know, this is not something that's negligible. There is lots of benefit that China still brings. It has massive problems. No one would deny that. I wouldn't deny that. But it also isn't a holy kind of dark picture. There are many, many things which we can see benefit. And I think that that's what we need, a balanced, nuanced view, not a constant striving for drama and division. On that note, Kerry Brown, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you for joining me on Head to Head. Thank you very much. And that's it for this special edition and this special series of Head to Head. Thank you for watching.